Hey guys, it's Ellie. Welcome to Minute Mysteries. You're in the right place. So, if you've never listened to an episode of this, first of all, welcome to the podcast. I hope you stick around. Second of all, let me explain what's going to happen. So, I have this book full of logic puzzles. I call them Minute Mysteries. They're also called Detectograms, which I think is a wonderful word for them. But they're essentially just scenarios that we're given that test our deduction skills. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read three of them. And then after I read each one, I'm going to try my darndest to find a solution for them. So if I do find a solution or I'm just out of ideas, then we'll read the solution together and we will laugh at how much we failed. (laughs) So what happened last week is I was only able to do two rather than my usual three, but I did get one of those right. So if I'd done a third, would I have gotten it right? Who knows? Regardless of my skill, these logic puzzles with no more waffle, let's jump right in. Robbery at high noon. I wonder who had the nerve to commit such a robbery at high noon, mused Professor Fordney as he examined the safe, 17 minutes after it had been rifled. Same old story, no fingerprints, no evidence. Found anything? asked Lawson nervously as he entered his drawing room. Not yet. Are you here alone, Lawson? Uh, No, uh, John, my nephew, is staying with me. Everyone else is in town. Where is he now? Oh, he left, uh, about an hour ago. At 3.20pm, Fordney noticed Jones, the gardener, working at the edge of a flower bed. He kept looking furtively at the house while he frantically covered over the hole he had dug. Finishing, he hurriedly walked towards the boat landing. Fordney, following, reached the dock just as John guided his motorboat in. Have a nice day? asked Fordney. Yep, had a grand run up the lakes. Where were you when your uncle's safe was robbed? Boy, I was hauling in a big muskie. What a battle he gave me. See him in the end of the boat? Isn't he a beauty? When did you return? Demanded Fordney of the gardener. I don't know what time it was, he replied nervously, glancing at John. You must have some idea. Well, it was about noon, he reluctantly answered. By the way, John, do you know the combination of your uncle's safe? Is that old weasel accusing me? No, he isn't, but I've got my suspicions. Whom did Fordney suspect, and why? Okay. (laughs) So, let's kind of sum up what's going on in here. The crime. What is the crime? Well, a safe was broken into at high noon. Yes, they use the term high noon, and I think that is beautiful. So, who are the suspects? First, there's Lawson, whose safe it actually is. Like, that's his safe. And then there's Lawson's nephew, who's staying with him right now. His name is John. And then there's the gardener, whose name is Jones. So what happened? Let's kind of sum up the story and, like, what Fordney witnessed, because he was kind of there when people were being suspicious. So, the robbery was at noon. Fordney got there 17 minutes later. Somehow. I don't know how he got there so quick. I suppose he was just in the area or something. So Lawson is just in the room with Fordney. Supposedly, he's just been kind of around the house. We assume that he was in the house when it was robbed. Maybe he wasn't, but I don't think there's anything that says he wasn't in the house. Then at 3.20 p.m., Fordney sees the gardener secretively covering up a hole that he dug in the flower bed and then going over to the boat dock, where Fordney finds John, the nephew. And he says that he had just come up from, you know, playing around on his boat through the lakes and catching fish and stuff like that. And then Fordney asks the gardener when John, the nephew, actually got back, and he says that he got back about noon. 
So that is an obvious clue that points to John, because, you know, if you got back at noon and it was stolen at noon, the times kind of line up. But as I've mentioned many times before on this segment, it's never the obvious clues. Like, if it's obvious, then it's almost 100% wrong. Like, these stories are just full of red herrings. So, like, there was only one solution. There was only one problem with this story. And everything else checks out. So, if you think something fits up too nicely, then it's probably not it. It's usually the really fine details, and, you know, you have to really think about it hard and connect two pieces of info that seem kind of disconnected in order to find the solution. It's, it's crazy. These things can get pretty hard. So let's see, let's think about what time John was actually gone, because he seems to be the prime suspect at the moment, because they don't have any evidence against the gardener besides the fact that he was in the garden burying something. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about John for a bit. So he was out on the boat, according to Lawson, who is his uncle. He left about an hour ago, which in this case it was about 12.17pm, if it happened right at high noon. And so that means that... According to Lawson, John left on his boat about 11.17, right? And then later, about four hours after he left, Fordney finds John on the boat dock. And he had just guided his motorboat in. And then Fordney asks, when did he get back? So I think Fordney is assuming that John left at 11.17, like Lawson said, came back, and then left again. I don't know how he knows that, but... Oh! Oh, oh, oh. okay. So what he says is he asks him... Where were you when your uncle's safe was robbed? And then John has an answer for him. John answers, oh man, I was I was catching this fish. He doesn't question that his uncle's safe was murdered. Because if he was gone on the boat, he wouldn't have known that his uncle's safe was murdered. I just said murdered. <laughs> he wouldn't have known that his uncle's safe was robbed. So the whole thing is that, according to Lawson, he left on his boat at about 11.17, right? And then Fordney sees him dock at 3.20pm, right? But then he intuitively knows... He came back before 3.20pm and then he went out again because he automatically asks the gardener, um, probably because he's more reliable than uh, John himself, when he actually did come back. And the gardener says noon. That means he's only out for like 45 minutes and then he came back to the house. So that means he definitely could have stolen from his uncle. We thought before that the coincidence of the times matching up when he came back into the house was too obvious. But that's only a piece of the puzzle. The main piece of this puzzle is the fact that John knew that his uncle's safe was stolen from. Oh my goodness. I think I got it. I think I figured it out. Oh my gosh. Okay. Let's read the solution and we'll see if I'm right. <laughs> he was suspicious of John, the nephew, of course. Upon being asked where he was at the time of the robbery, he stated he was, quote, hauling in a muskie. Unless he had guilty knowledge, he could not possibly have known at what time the robbery was committed. He fell neatly into the professor's trap, don't you think? Oh, heck yeah! Woo! <laughs> Dude, I got it! Oh man, what a good start to the day. One for one so far, I will take my 100%. Oh man, I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm glad that I caught that. You know, I'm glad that I kind of went through exactly what happened, you know? Sometimes going through and looking at every single clue just kind of confuses me more, but sometimes going through the story and like recapping it and summarizing what I just read really helps me think through some points. So sometimes it's beneficial, sometimes it's just distracting, but hey, it worked out this time. Anyway, so that's enough gloating, let's go to the next one. The Wrong Foot Forward The witness says, explained the interpreter, 
that as the car came to a sudden stop, the conductor ran to the front and yelled to the motorman, You've done it again. The little foreigner on the witness stand looked bewildered and frightened. He further says that there were two sailors on the car and that they jumped off and ran. Have they been located yet? inquired the judge. No, your honor, we've been unable to trace them, although the conductor gave a good description, replied counsel. Proceed. The interpreter continued. Peslovsky, the witness, declares he had a clear view of the plaintiff when he got off. He states that just as the plaintiff put his foot on the ground with his back to the front of the car, it gave a sudden start and he was thrown to the road. Can't the witness understand or speak English to tell the court about that? asked the judge. No, your honor, he's been in this country only two weeks. How can he get about that hour of night alone then? Some friends put him on the car and telephoned the people with whom he lives to meet him at the end of the line, replied counsel for the plaintiff. Continue. Paslovsky, declared the interpreter, says he picked up this picture from the floor of the car, a snapshot of a sailor and a girl. Case dismissed, thundered the judge, and don't ever bring another like that into this court. Why was his honor justified in so abruptly dismissing the suit for damages? Ooh. <laughs> oh, okay, so actually I'm really excited about this one because there's something in the very beginning that I noticed as I was reading it, and I think it's really strange. So, obviously, this witness who was in court needed an interpreter in order to communicate with the rest of the court because he's only been in the country for two weeks. And he couldn't even go on a train by himself. He had to have his friends put him on the train and make sure that the people living with him knew to pick him up. So we can assume he doesn't speak any English and he doesn't understand any English. However, in the very beginning, literally the first sentence, the interpreter is explaining the witness's story. He says, The witness says that as the car came to a sudden stop, the conductor ran to the front and yelled to the motorman, You've done it again. But my question is, how could the witness know that they said, quote-unquote, you've done it again, if he doesn't speak English. Think about that. <laughs> I'm actually pretty confident in that solution. I think that that is a great solution. Sometimes, you know, the later clues can get really confusing and can kind of just make everything more complex. But, like, it makes sense that, like, if someone needs an interpreter to the point where they can't even get on a train, then they wouldn't be able to understand what someone was saying to someone else just by overhearing a conversation. Oh. <sighs> Oh my goodness, I think I got it. <laughs> I, I, I seriously think I got it, like, on first try. Let's, let's look at the solution. I'm actually way too confident in the solution. So, yeah, let's read the solution. Paslovsky, the witness, who could not understand or speak enough English to make a simple statement to the court, yet knew exactly what the conductor yelled to the motorman. This was so patently impossible that the judge was entirely justified in dismissing the suit. I got it! <gasps> I got it! <laughs> oh my gosh, dude, I swear I'm getting better at these. These first two I've gotten, like, really quick. Sometimes, in order to get a correct solution, I need to think about it for a long time, and I need to really, like, go into details. And half the time I don't even get it right, but these two today, I've gotten, like, I've gotten pretty quick. <laughs> I am on a roll. I am riding high right now, dude. Okay, whew! Now, enough gloating, <laughs> let's move on to the last one. Death attends the party. He had a big party last night, said Graves, the valet. Certainly looks like it, 
retorted Professor Forney, as he surveyed the crazily balanced glasses, overflowing ashtrays, and liquor rings on the small, fragile antique table at which Carlton Dawes sat. It was just awful, sir. Just as I turned to say goodnight to him, he lifted his revolver, fired, and toppled over. Oh, funny, mused Fordney. He had everything to live for. Everything but the thing he wanted, replied the valet. Madeline, his former wife, was here last night. He is always despondent after seeing her. Well, Graves, pretty nice for you, eh? How much did he leave you? Ten thousand dollars, sir. Fordney leaned over to examine the wound in Dawes's left temple. His head rested on the edge of the table, his right hand on his knee, and his left hung lifelessly at his side. Has anything been touched since the tragedy? No, sir. Fordney picked up Dawes's revolver where it had apparently fallen from his hand. After examining it and finding only the dead man's fingerprints, he laid it on the table. As he did so, Madeline entered the room. She stopped, horrified. Oh, what, what has happened? Where did you come from? demanded Fordney. I've been upstairs. I didn't leave with the guests. Hmm, you should have, as he shot her a quizzical look. Your presence may prove embarrassing. Your ex-husband was murdered. Madeline slipped to the floor in a dead faint. What convinced Fordney it was murder? Interesting, interesting. So this does have suicide in it, so I'll probably put a content warning on this. But uh, regardless, let's see. So I did notice that there was a weird amount of detail when it came to which hand and which side of the head was shot. So it says that the left side of his head was shot, which obviously, unless he like weirdly twisted his hand around his head, that means he shot himself, which sucks, don't do that, with his left hand, right? And then later it describes that his right hand was on his knee and his left hand was limp and lifeless. I am very, very unfamiliar with guns. I don't know what shooting a gun does to your arm that shoots it if you shoot yourself. Like, would it fall? I guess that makes sense. Like, if you, like, shoot yourself and then your hand just falls to your side, like, that makes sense to me, right? But anyway, that's just where I noticed a couple of extra details that didn't seem necessary. So, that's not necessarily a solution or anything. That's just something I noticed. So, let's, uh, let's look for something else. Oh, I don't know if this is anything close to a solution, but I did notice another simple connection. They describe the table at which Carlton Dawes was sitting at as, quote, small, fragile, and antique. And after he died, he fell forward and hit his face on the table. And obviously I'm not suggesting that it's so fragile that it would have broken, but that's just a connection that I found. Like, he did just, like, topple over on his face on the edge of the table. I think it's too much of a leap of logic to say that the table is so fragile that it should have broken when his head rested on it, because obviously... We can't see the table. We don't know what material it was made out of. We don't know how fragile it was. That's just a thought that I had. Let's uh, continue searching. <laughs> I don't see anything else. I mean, besides the fact that Madeline didn't leave with the rest of the guests and was still in the house, like that's weird, but that doesn't necessarily point to murder. Um, I do think there was a weird amount of detail when it comes to like the position of the body, like how he toppled over forward instead of to the side or how his arms were positioned, or the like, where the gun wound was positioned. There's gotta be something there. And something maybe even with the table, like I mentioned before. Again, it's gotta be related to that in some way, because I can't find anything else anywhere else. So, yeah. <laughs> Let's read the solution, because I'm kind of out of ideas. 
had Dawes fallen on the table after being shot, the jar would have knocked over the, quote, crazily balanced glasses. As the professor found the glasses on the table balanced, it was obvious Dawes had been shot, then carefully placed at the table to give the appearance of suicide. A bad slip. Oh, man. Okay, so I literally went to the beginning of the little story here, and I reread the description of the room, like the balanced glasses, the ashtrays, the liquor rings, but I focused on the fragile antique table for some reason. Like, I didn't even pay attention to the crazily balanced glasses. Um, wow, that is an oversight on my part. <laughs> but hey, that's two for three. I will take that, especially because I got the first two so quickly. Mm, proud of myself. Patting myself on the back right now. <laughs> Okay, I love recording these episodes, and I love being able to try and solve these, whether I succeed or not. I still love hearing the solutions, and and I love feeling clever when I do solve it, but I also love just seeing the clever solutions when I don't solve it. Like, feeling justified at having failed a logic puzzle just because the solution was so clever and weird and specific, you know? Yeah, I just have a couple things to say. Um, if you guys enjoy listening, or if you guys have anything to say, any uh, feedback or comments, or just book recommendations, or like logic puzzle recommendations, or author recommendations, I don't care. Give them all to me, put them in my inbox, classicmysteriespod at gmail.com, it's in the show notes obviously. And uh, yeah, I would appreciate that. Also, I do this every once in a while, I gotta plug my Etsy store. <laughs> so I have this Etsy store, the link is in the show notes as well. I just, you know, it's a little cross-stitching store, I sell earrings and keychains and necklaces and it's very adorable, so check that out if you want. It's not related to the podcast, I just wanted to plug myself. But yeah, regardless of all that, I hope you have a delightsome day. And yes, I did just say delightsome. <laughs> I'm grateful to have you guys as listeners, and I hope you guys uh, stay safe. But before I go, I would like to mention... <clears throat> I need to figure out an outro. <laughs> Maybe I should start saying my goodbye with, like, a vibrato. I was thinking. Instead of, like, bye, it's like, bye. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I could try to be, like, an opera singer. Or, like, do it in, like, falsetto. Like, goodbye. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> I still need to kind of figure out, like, my unique outro for this uh, this segment. And I've tried to do, like, stupid death jokes, but those never work. So I was thinking, like, maybe I could still do, like, the bye, but instead of, like, doing it my normal way, I could do it like a bye, or like, bye, <laughs> you know? I think, I think that'd be a, a good thing to kind of end on. You guys tell me, what, what, what do you guys want me to do at the end of Minute Mysteries shows? I'm open for ideas, I'm still kind of brainstorming. But regardless for today, I'm gonna do the falsetto thing, so see you guys next Thursday. Bye! <laughs>